This edition of Eternal Leadership has been brought to you by Halftime Institute. To receive a free copy of Bob Buford's classic book, Halftime, moving from success to significance, just go to eternalleadership.com slash halftime. Welcome to Eternal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has created in them. I'm Steve Ryder, co-founder and co-host. Here's this week's interview by my partner, John Ramstead. All right, today on the Eternal Leadership Podcast, we're going to have an interesting conversation that is something that uh, probably one of the uh, questions that we get asked so often, and it's really about how do we as you know, there's so there's so many generations that are out in the workforce right now, right? We have Gen Z, X, Y, baby boomers, and there's probably more than that even. And uh, but I, Lee Carraher, thank you for making the time today and, and being on the podcast. John, it's such an honor to be with you. Thank you for having me. Uh, well, I'm excited to have you here because this is such a great topic. And Lee, I know you just wrote a book, um, The Boomerang Principle, and it's about how mm-hmm. to inspire lifetime loyalty from your employees. Yes. And who would love to have a company that you wake up on Monday and you're driving to work, like today. Today's Monday. We're recording this, right, Lee? Yeah. And you're actually excited to go to work. You know, work <laughs> doesn't have to suck. You can look forward to it. Yeah. So, and we want to create that, right? And now I know you're an entrepreneur. Uh, You're a CEO. You've spent over 20 years actually building um, companies, but also creating these positive, these high performing work teams. Um, get a lot of you know a lot of work done. The transaction side, but also the relationship side is there too, and you're having a lot of fun. Absolutely. You're also you do a lot of work in keynote speaking and training and writing. And the other book that you wrote is called Millennials and Management: The Essential Guide to Making It Work at Work. Uh, so, folks, we're just going to have a great conversation today because Lee and I were just sharing before we started recording today. I really think one of the biggest leadership opportunities that has ever existed is right now, and that's with us Gen Xers and baby boomers, not changing maybe our leadership principles, but how we're applying what we've learned in our life, our leadership principles, in a way that really connects, equips, teaches, and empowers this generation of millennials, which is a massive generation Mm-hmm. to do more than either of our generations have ever dreamed of. That potential is there. And, and this is an opportunity for us to create a powerful leadership legacy. Don't you think, Lee? I totally agree. I totally agree. I think the millennials, you know, um, millennials in general, you know, it's 80 million people in this country alone. Um, and they have such a different upbringing um, in terms of their belief in themselves, their belief in their peers, their the their ability to use technology to their advantage, um, the power they had more power in their hands since they were ten than went to the moon, um, and our leadership of them with them is probably a better way of saying it mm. is ha- because the of is not very millennial, but the with is. Um, you know, we have a huge opportunity that if we don't, you know, as leaders, if we don't move towards it, we're just going to be dropping the ball, dropping the ball. And we can um, help these people who are this year are between 16 and 36 years old, 80 million people in this country, um, you know, 
really achieve what they want to achieve in the world and the world will be a better place for it. Yeah, now you you were the founder and CEO of a company called Double Forte, which was a very uh, a successful public relationships mm-hmm. digital media agency. And I know that that first book, Millennials and Management, really came out of um, you self described right failing, despair. You're <laughs> failing miserably at retaining millennials yes. in that company. Oh. So and, terrible. And I think there, man, I got to tell you, I heard it. Yeah, we were working with the uh, um, a very large organization, and some of the biggest challenges uh, that are in that organization are around this area of the multi generational dynamic and relationships, and just this yep. real, uh, just a, I would, an unclarity. That's probably not a, the best word, right? But not, but not knowing even how, right? I know yes. why I should do it. I probably know what I might should do, but I have no idea how to even connect to some of these folks. So maybe you could even bring us back and almost walk. Sure. I'd love to hear just for some context some of your experiences and things leading up to your experience at Double Forte, and what led to really kind of connecting with how to do this well. Sure. So I started Double Forte in 2002 in the in the down well that downturn, and uh, in San Francisco. And this had had been after managing very large teams, 750 people, 650 people at my previous two jobs, which were one was at a uh, international media company, and the other one was um, right before that was at Sega of America, the video game company, when Sega was a um, billion and a half dollar company in this country alone, and. When I started, so I had very large, you know, large, large teams. Um, when I started my own company, um, my intention was to be small and not to have to travel the world and uh, be home closer to my family. I am the chief bacon officer in our family. Um, my husband is a chief home officer. He works part time. I work full time. And he has he is responsible for making sure our children get where they need to be and all that kind of stuff. However, um, and in 2002 in San Francisco, this is after obviously um, 9-11 and also after the NASDAQ implosion, the dot-com bust. And 80,000 people left San Francisco between 2001 and 2002, professionals. And so there were lots of people hanging around with 10 years plus of experience um, who needed jobs. And I was like, wow, that's going to be so much easier if I just hire people who know what the heck they're doing. Um, I'll just hire people with 10 years of experience. And we did that for, uh, you couldn't swing a dead cat, actually, without hitting 15 people who qualified. Um, I did that for, uh, and we grew the team from myself and my partner to 18 people by 2008. And I was feeling really good about it. Um, we were starting to see some of our retail clients um, starting to have a little softness, but you know, our business was strong and I was at um, my horseback riding lesson with my son, uh, his lesson. And I was like, you know, I miss riding. I'm going to, I've done this for a long time. I am going to work five, you know, instead of five days, I work for three or four days. I'm going to figure this out. Uh, that was on September 13th. On September 15th, we know what happened by, you know, by noon, I was happy. I said, oh my gosh, we'll be lucky if we make it through, uh, you know, eight days a week, 24-7. So coming out of that, you know, when you go into any sort of disruption in your business, it could be just your business. It could be 
the whole region, it could be the whole country, it could be the whole world, which for us it was obviously, we have to look at our business models because the business model that took us into that situation is probably not going to be the business model that takes us out of that situation. And uh, when we looked at our business model, it was clear that we could not just hire people who had 10 years of experience. One, we were going to run out of them because there was a big donut hole. No one, no one in San Francisco got hired between 2000 and 2004. So we're going to run out of people with 10 years of experience. Um, and there's some other things that we looked at. So I was like, oh, well, we'll just hire young people. That's not a problem. I, I was good at this. I'm known for this. And so. Well, yeah, I, and, a, and a lot of us, right, in leadership oh, and management. Oh, yeah. Right. We look for those people with the right, you know, Absolutely. personalities, characteristics. And you know what? I, I've always felt like if I can find that right person um, yeah. and they do have the right I background, anything. I can teach them the skills. Anything. So right. that's the kind of, is that the mindset you were kind of coming at with here as you made the shift? That's the mindset. We just yeah. made the shift. We were like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to lower our cost basis. We're going to grow our own from the bottom because we're going to, we don't have any more people coming into that 10 year experience level. Well, organic uh, farming. Hired our, exactly. Thank you. <laughs> um, hired our first one, uh, Stephanie, mm -hmm. who is fantastic. She brought her dog to work the first day. I was sort of flabbergasted, never asked, didn't tell anybody, just brought her dog and her, the dog's pillow and the water filtration system and the kibble dispenser. And I, I was like, what happened? What happened? And um, she didn't ask. We didn't, I'm like, is anybody allergic to dogs? I mean, let's find that out first. And the dog had a um, the service dog uh, jacket, right? So can't let the dog go because it's against the law. And uh, the, the dog is a chihuahua. I mean, the dog was not like helping her open doors, right? So it's very flabbergasting. We sort of got over that. I was like, you know, next time you got to ask kind of stuff. And then about was a year later. Was it really later, a service hired, dog or is it like a service dog well, jacket you buy on eBay? Well, you can't, you, uh, no, she had paperwork. She carried the paperwork wherever she went. Okay. So she had the dog. Um, well, then she ran this little side business, which was get all the dogs being become service dogs. And so by the end of two months, I had nine service dogs in the office. Oh, my goodness. Anywho, that's another story. So then I hired – we figured her out, right? And we had so much energy, so many good ideas. I didn't quite know what to do with them all. But we kept her busy enough so it didn't you know, become an issue. Then we hired – about a year later, we hired six millennials within eight weeks of each other, and they were all gone within three months. Hmm. And that was 100% failure. And I, in my career, had never had 100% failure in recruiting. I was known for being a person who could recruit and retain people. What, what and did one you learn person, from that? Well, one person could be their problem, right? I could have made one bad hire, but I couldn't make six bad hires. And so we looked at ourselves. We were like, okay, what did we do wrong? Yeah. And everything we've done right until that moment about recruiting and retaining people, because we had very low churn, was wrong with this group. So I started looking at it and everything that I read about it. First, I found out what a millennial was. I didn't know they existed. I thought it was Gen Y. And it is. Gen Y and millennial are the same thing. Yep. And everything was so negative, John. Every, you, know, you cannot find very many positive things about working with millennials if you just Google it. And I decided that uh, it is statistically impossible for an entire generation to be rude, an entire generation to be entitled, an entire generation to need a trophy to show up and all that kind of stuff. And I decided to go back to the basics of, of uh, communication and leadership and interview Millennials, And so basically, um, over the next year, yep. we 
worked on it to figure out what, why we failed so miserably when we hired these six very good people um, and what we're going to have to do differently if we were going to have a future because a business without a millennial is a business without a future. Um, and coming out of that was um, uh, a shift, not of what we intended, but of how we acted and um, of sort of articulation of what was in our brains, of things that millennials w- w- say they want, that Xers and boomers also want, but never said so when they were their age. Mm-hmm. And um, sort of sort of breaking down the negative things that the older people in our in our company and in our clients had about these millennials. Um, it did not mean we got a, and then coming out of that, I started doing much more work in my own work because we uh, my agency, Double four table work extern, you know, public relations, but also communications internally as well. My work started being much more about that work with uh, the CEOs that I work with because they were having as much struggle as we had had. Um, and then finally, one said, "Did you just write the book, Lee? Just write the book. You figured it out. Write the book." So I did, um, and that has been, uh, you know, one of. Like you said earlier, John, I think one of the best things we can do is share what we learn, right? We share what we learn, and uh, if if someone can take one nugget out of the work that I do that they can apply to their work and make it better for themselves, I feel like I've accomplished something. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Now, you said, you know, you had to make a shift in what you intended <laughs> versus, you know, uh, what was acted. What, what did you mean by that? So... Um, Millennials, and, and I, I hate doing this, but I'm going to speak ge- in generalities, right? Yeah, Millennials it's a large are, group, but everybody's it's an a individual. Large group. I get it, though, right? right? <laughs> yeah, it's a large group. And if you asked a Gen Xer who's more entitled, they would say boomers <laughs> or millennials. They'll say boomers every single time. So, uh, you know, everything's from a different point of view. But uh, in general, millennials are um, not a me generation. They are a we generation. And I'll explain why. In general, millennials want to make a difference and believe they can make a difference just being um, their their schooling, their upbringing, their parents, the economy, the culture has shown them that they can make a difference. Um, They are used to having um, direct access, or at least the implication or the illusion of direct access in their hands. So being able to make uh, email anybody in the world, tweet at anybody in the world, um, cause uh, social action with a tweet or an email or a post or whatever, that kind of stuff, right in their hands. They're used to having that. These are things that we, as I'm the last year of Boomer, you're an Xer, we, you know, our generations did not have. Uh, although we all want to make a difference, we all want to have work that matters. We all want to matter in general. We all want to, I think in general, you know, no matter what type you are, no matter, you know, type A, type B, B minus, or, you know, wherever you are in the Myers-Briggs range, you want to make a difference in the world. We just never talked about it that way. So when we, <clears throat> when we peel yeah, the a, onion that's, on you know, it. That, that's an important point, though, right? So there's there's that mm-hmm. common value there, but we just talk about it very in a very different way, don't we? Very much so. I mean, if you think about boomers, boomers almost the same size of a generation as millennials. Um, Seventy-eight million boomers in this country. Xers are really uh, the generation out, right? They are almost in half of either of those groups, and lots of single children. Really, the the advent of the latchkey kid with the dual income family, all that kind of stuff. Um, meant much more independence in the Gen X generation than either in the boomer or the millennial generation. Um, and 
the but who doesn't want to matter in a workplace? Who doesn't want to have a job that matters? Who doesn't want to be important to the people around them? Nobody. Everybody. I mean, but we just didn't talk about it this way. Boomers were told we were just the wait my turn generation. There were so many of us. The economy was expanding at such a rate and much more evenly than it is today that if we just waited around, we would get a, we'd get elevated, right? Um, so we peeled the onion and we were like, okay. How do you make sure that everybody knows that they matter, that they have a role that matters, even if it's a low man on the totem pole or entry level or it feels like it's stupid work? Because that's the biggest complaint from millennials is that my work doesn't matter. My work is so menial. I already know how to do this. And the concept of mastering something um, is not inherent in particularly the um, the two sets of older millennials, people who are 20 sort of like 23 to 36 this year, the no child left behind when you just had to take so many tests, test, 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 yeah. that you didn't master the material. And colleges all over the country have been dealing with this ramification for the last 10 years where they've had to remediate more than half of their um, uh, freshman populations. Learning how to master something was not part of the education system until, uh, well, depending on where you are in the country, you know. Um, and so, you get into the workplace and the millennials are like, I've did that. I'm like, well, you've done it once. That doesn't mean you've mastered it. Right. Um, and that, that is a common complaint from managers. Like they just want to do something once and move on. Well, that's what they had to do in education system. Mm. So how you create context expectations, set a high bar and then fix and make sure that people know are motivated, even though they, they think they know everything. Uh, we all thought we know everything. This is nothing new, right? We sort of talk about millennials as if they're on the Serengeti, like there's never been, uh, you know, intergenerational conflict ever in our lives. Well, I have a degree in medieval history. I can tell you that the Middle Ages are just, you know, 500 years of intergenerational conflict. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I'm sure. Well, I, I'm sure that the Gen Xers <laughs> right now. Are, uh, yeah. Were the millennials of their day to the other two generations above them, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Yeah. All we do is all all we've really done is change the uh, some of the titles, the exactly. labels. Exactly. Well, the labels are different, but I do think that the characteristics of each generation are very different. Mm -hmm. So what we did was we just said day one. I want you to understand when we recruit you, you matter. You matter to the team and that your job, no matter what it is, is counted on. We don't pay for anybody to do a job that doesn't have to get done. And if you don't do your job, then someone else has to do your job. And if they have to do your job, they can't do their job. And if they don't do their job, then the team doesn't succeed. So you under have to meet, you sort of turn the pyramid upside down. We used to talk about, you know, corporate goals as the big thing. Right. But with yeah. millennials, if you turn it upside down and say, my role matters and it's the biggest thing to want, worry about. And let me understand, you know, where if I don't do my job, how that dominoes, you know, um, through the organization. Um, that one thing changed everything in our office, everything, because everyone understood that they mattered no matter what the work was. And we were all counting on each other. The other thing we found out was you know, uh, particularly for boomers and Xers, you know, motivation is a little different among a group. And um, growing, when I came into the business, you know, people would say, Lee, you're not living up to, well, I didn't say this very often, but still, you're not living up to your potential. <laughs> and it would crush me. Oh my gosh, I'd be crushed. This generation in general could care less what we think about their potential. 
what they really care about is what they want to do, but they also care about how other not letting the team down. So I went from, and someone just hit me over the head with this, you know, Lee, I could care less what you think about my potential. I'm like, oh, well, good to know. I said, well, what do you care about? Tell me what you do care about. And this young man was like, you know, it would crush me. It would crush me if uh, my team thought I dropped the ball. So coming out of that conversation, which was uh, hard to hear, you know, everything I knew was just wrong for this group was, you know what, let's say, you know, so John, say you, uh, you had a bad day and you didn't do what you're supposed to do. I might have before this revelation said, dude, you just didn't live up to your potential. Like what? what? Explain yourself. And you might, uh, I would have expected you as a Gen Xer or a boomer, I would have expected you to react positively to that. Like, who wants to hear that? Well, that, that, that is a huge difference because you're right. right. As you know, I was coming up in the military and then in business and starting ah. companies. If my mentor or a peer said that to me, man, man, there'd be some soul searching. Now you're talking about something right? that's a really different value set, right? Because you said yeah. before, this is the we generation. So, right. uh, so if I said to I'm glad you're going there. I said to the millennial, you, you, you know, you, dr- you didn't do a good job, John, and you let the team down. Then that actually creates a fetal position in the corner and it never happens again, in my experience. Hmm. So when, and once we understood that, we could flip everything else around. So basically it is what, making sure everyone understands what roles they have to play, making sure everybody understands um, that they can have some input Right. So they want to have input. They've had input on everything really up till through college input since sixth grade on everything. So, you know, when you do a project, when you lay out a project, how can we make this better? Allow people to input. Um, It's the number one thing you can do to make sure a millennial knows that they matter to you is ask for their input. And, you know, when you talked about, um, you know, people understand what their roles are. But also, you know, how that interacts with really the roles of everybody on this team and and what the work is. How did you do that? Mm -hmm. So what we did was um, we did a couple of things. First, we did a lot of typing work, you know, personality typing work. I'm sure you use that in your coaching. Mm -hmm. So we use strength finders and the Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram and some, and some people, the leadership group also had um, the disc profile done. And then we actually shared that information with everybody. So we have a binder of all our people. And when we put the team together, we pull that binder, you know, pull all those people together and see what we got. Right. And what everybody and everyone sees who everyone else is on the team. So there's a lot of transparency then. The next thing we do is say, okay, here's the, here's our project. Here are the people on the team. Here's where we think the roles are going to be. What do you guys think? And it's usually 85% there. But someone invariably has a thought that says, you know, if John did that work with me, then we would get that faster. And then Sally and Jane could do it this way, whatever, right? So we sort of devise a team and then let people let the team um, input. They don't always get their way, but at least they have input and you respect that input. And then we're very clear about who's doing what for when, right? We have a very heavy CC culture. So we don't send emails individually. We send emails to teams so everyone can see um, what everyone else needs to be doing. Because particularly in a cloud-based environment where there's just so much going on uh, that people are collaborating on, uh, you know, who's in the two line and who's in the CC line really matters. 
being involved, being included really matters, you know, and particularly for what my experience with Gen Xers is like, don't bother me if I don't have to know. (laughs) I will do my thing. I will kick it out of the park. But, you know, everybody do your job and we'll all be good. Uh, it's a very different uh, mindset, really, for millennials than that. So that's what we did. We, we started sh- sharing things early, uh, sharing everything. Like, here's the project. If we, could, if we do our project, here's what the outcome will be. And then the company will be able to do this project. And then that will happen and we'll achieve the goal. Um, really doing that through line from the individual to the company goal made all the difference in the world. The next thing we did was start saying, uh, you know, we know a lot about appreciation. We know a lot of there's a lot of data uh, science on the theory of appreciation. Teams that feel appreciated outperform those that don't by a factor of up to three to one right down to the bottom line. It is a good business decision to be a good place to work. uh, A great tool for that that we use is, uh, you know, affirmations. We actually teach people how to give an affirmation. If you can if you can create a team that is an affirming team. Um, oh. it's really powerful and not in the area so of flattery. Powerful. We tell them the difference between affirmation exactly. and flattery, but it has to Absolutely. be for real things that somebody did, even if they're, was, oh, go ahead. Well, yeah. Well, I would say I agree entirely. Even if they are small, they seem small. Yeah. Um, so, and be very specific, right? The, the feedback that says you did a great job is actually not very helpful. The feedback that says, you did a great job in that presentation. I liked your slides. You only had one word. Your slides told the story that you were talking. You never looked at your slides. I knew that you knew the material. You um, you stood strong um, and, you know, you were just very powerful in your stance. And so you did. that is good feedback, positive feedback. Um, being as specific in the positive as being specific in the critical or the opportunities for growth, as we now call them. You know, that's where you really need to be. Um, And the affirmation, we actually had, you know, I grew up with, my father was a cardiac surgeon. So please and thank you were implied, as he told us all the time. Because, you know, (laughs) Lee, if I say please and thank you in the the operating room, someone's going to die. And that was true, right? I got it, right? Because, you know, he's asking for a scalpel 19 times in in an hour or whatever. So when I learned this um, idea of the affirmation, the positive reinforcement, um, the appreciation, I did it, tried it my, myself first before I foisted it on my team. And um, we started, I started saying please and thank you where I'd never really said it before. And I found other ways to say it, you know, um, I appreciate this or different words, but I spent a whole week saying please and thank you. And I felt like such a tool, John. I felt like, oh my gosh, they're going to see right through me. They're going to think I'm thinking it. But I wasn't. I was actually, you know, wow, these people are working hard. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for being on time. Thank you for everyone started on. It was great. Everyone started on time. We already had that culture to start on time, be five minutes early. But I just started saying thank you for being on time or whatever. By, and we track every minute. Well, not every. We track our time by the 15 minutes. Okay. So I started saying please and thank you. Then uh, that became very natural to me within two weeks. Right. The first week was very challenging. By the end of the 14th day, I was like, this is just please and thank you, please and thank you. So this is definitely making some changes. and Making some changes. And I know we're going to get to this, but uh, because I'd love Uh to just, you know, uh, throw this out there now. (laughs) Well, no, no. As you're working with your clients, you know, that you're working with on this, right? Uh, I'd love yeah. for you to weave in some of the the mindsets that Gen Xers and Boomers have when they're thinking about millennials that that yeah. have been hard to overcome 
like you made these changes because you were focused on the outcomes you wanted to get. Uh, I know your heart. You really wanted to build these people up. You saw their potential. And, you know, so, you know, the pain of staying the same exceeded the pain of change. So you were willing yes. to make some of the changes. So, um, you know, as you go through this, I'd love for you to just kind of wrap sure. in where some of the stumbling blocks are for some of these other generations on how to really, you know, adapt that leadership style. So it really, you know, makes a difference. Well, there's definitely resistance. There's definitely resistance. We see more resistance from men than we do from women, particularly around the appreciation thing. And that just may be a gender deal. Um, and well, we shouldn't have to do that. We hear a lot of that. Why should we do that? That didn't happen for us. Why should we have to do it for them? Yeah, right? like I like I just talked to a guy uh, last week. He's like, you know what? I didn't. I put in the work. I put in eighty nine hours a week because it mm -hmm. was the price I had to pay to get the corner office. Right. And well, they don't really care about the corner office, though. No, right? <laughs> they don't care about the corner <laughs> office, and they don't I care don't about paying job. the price sometimes. Well, it's, it's how it's, it's perceived. How's that? It's how it's perceived. Yeah. Um, the uh, well, I think. So one, one, I get that a lot. Why should I have to do this? Oh my God. That's, you're just coddling them. You're just coddling them. And my point of view is that it's not coddling. It's, um, this generation, uh, where we think, you know, they're just entitled. You shouldn't, you know, my, the paycheck is a thank you. These are, you know, sort of the old school thoughts, which, um, I don't necessarily disagree. At the same time, you can either change or you can keep beating your head against the wall and keep churning your employees and keep shortening your sustainability. Mm. Because frankly, if we don't have employ employees that are uh, our former employees out there who are saying good things about our company, but uh, we are shortening our sustainability. Um, and the millennial former employee has more power than we want to acknowledge. So um, that's, and then I just go through it and I, I said, okay, we're going to start we're just going to try this. And for me, because I went through it myself in my own company and I run my, I'm not, uh, I'm running a company here. I'm not just, um, not just consulting or, or writing about this stuff. I'm actually doing things here first and seeing what works. Yeah. Um, I'm able to give the statistics, right? So I found when, so we track positive time, billable time and non-billable time. When we started being a, a, a culture of appreciation, our non-billable time went down by 10%. And that was the only thing we changed. So, so you know, that's money, right? right. So I was able to track, a, you know, KPI to this um, behavior. Um, so when we did that, right, and then I was able to track churn to the whole change, which was the whole thing about uh, roles, appreciation, high standards. I mean, if you... You know, and so my churn rate in my agency versus other agencies in San Francisco is more than double. I'm sorry, less than double. So, uh, are you, are you talking about churn of uh, internal employees? employees? Is that what you're talking about? Employees and then clients. So, our average okay. uh, average tenure for someone under 30 in San Francisco in 2016 was about um, 24 months. Average tenure for someone at Double Forte under 30 was 49 months. So. Um, and that's money. That's more money, right? Because every time you replace somebody, that costs you two times that person's um, cost, right? Yeah, hard uh, and soft costs. I think, yeah. I hard think two, and soft costs. I think 2x right? is easily a great benchmark, and I think a lot of times it's higher than that, yeah. especially as they're more skilled. I do, too. I do, too. So 
when I was able to show, I just opened my books for these clients. I'm like, here you go. Here's what happened when we did this right before and after. Um, that helps a lot in, have, in showing people the impact of these changes that I, I highly recommend. The other piece I found is, you know, um, uh, organizations that help millennials thrive also help Xers and boomers thrive, although the reverses may not may not be true. So everybody benefits. Everybody benefits when a millennial can thrive in your organization because who doesn't want to matter? Who doesn't want to be thanked for their work? You know, I think inefficiency comes from uh, inefficiency comes from personal agitation, right? We, we we grind on the fact that people like don't like our work or we grind on the fact that we didn't get that job or we grind on the fact that no one said thank you or we grind on the fact that nothing's getting better. But if you have a, and by grinding on it, you are being inefficient. I mean, that, I mean, it's goes hand in hand, right? <laughs> well, that, that, that's a great thing, man. That's, that's something to kind of write down. Inefficiency is from personal agitation. And really what you're talking about is creating this culture where people are appreciated, they're affirmed, they know their role, they know their work, they know why it matters. This is super important to millennials. But in doing that, what I'm hearing is you've also found that that has had really positive impacts on um, other parts of the workforce. Absolutely. Those go hand in hand. You can't, I would say sometimes, you know, people are like, um, some of my clients are like, well, you're just lowering your standards, Lee. Absolutely not. The high performance that I require of my employees has not changed uh, regardless of the culture. The, you know, you only have a business if you have a business, right? right? So clients aren't going to hire us if we do not have a high standard of performance. Our performance is measured by two things. One is results of the things we're looking to get. And two is how easy we are to work with, service. So, um, and we know that our churn rate on our clients, an average client for us, if it's not a startup, we measure startups a little differently, is uh, eight and a half years, which is almost three times as long as the average client that's not a startup in San Francisco. So we know from our business that these things all work together. And we know that that increased, that average year thing increased by two and a half years after we made these changes in our culture. So we were, so, we were six years prior to this. Is, would that be We accurate? were six years, yes. Wow, that's, that's we a big always, difference. Which is already high. Six years was already high, and we mm -hmm. did it because we only ha we had people who had ten years or, or more experience, right? And they knew what they were doing. And we had a we've always had a high service culture here, but we were able to raise that once we had our um, culture change around millennials and just appreciation, expectations, and roles, and then also um, helping people achieve what they want to achieve. When you can help someone achieve what they want to achieve in the confines of your company, wow, that is where real power comes in. Um, and that's where loyalty is built. Because yeah, what, what does that look like, Lee, when you say mm -hmm. help them achieve what they want to achieve? Can you um, yeah. expand on Absolutely. that a little bit? Sure. So it's really messy, unfortunately. I think we want to think about, and I really I don't like the word management because management to me sounds like you can put up you know, a square hole in a square box and there are lots of check marks, right? Yeah. And we're talking about human beings who are by definition messy, 
right? We have lots of things we're dealing with in our lives. So when I embrace the chaos of that, <laughs> and then try to put everybody into a uh, into a check mark. What we do now is, one, we have all these things we just talked about. Here are the expectations. Here's how we behave together. Uh, here's what's acceptable. Here's what's not. We give all that stuff up front, and we reinforce it all the time uh, around our values. We created values around behaviors and expectations. The personal development part is you're, you're accountable for your own career. You know, you're going to be here. I hope you're here for a long time. I know you're probably not going to be. Um, but I hope you are, and I want you to be able to achieve what you want to achieve um, in this career. But you know, my company is doing this. We're not going to, you know, we're not all of a sudden become skilled nursing advisors. You know, that's not what we're going to do. But if you want to become a nurse, and we've had several people who left to become nurses or PAs, which is totally out of our range, right? But I've worked here. Uh, part-time while they're getting their extra school so they could go do what they wanted. Well, if we know that, we can help you be successful. And if you're successful, we're successful. Uh, at the other time, it could be somebody who said, you know, uh, my assistant, for example, I, my assistant, David, he, he, one of the reasons he wanted to work here is because um, I'm all about having people do other things. You know, um, I'm on three boards. I'm very much around justice and helping people uh you know, achieve their goals in the world, make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. And um, he also is that way. He's very involved with his church and he's also an actor. And so he could come here, uh, do those things and act at night. Well, one day I saw him drawing at his desk on his off time. I'm like, what are you doing? He was an incredible artist. He never told me this. I'm like, are you an artist too? He goes, yeah, I, I sort of dabble. I'm like, dabble? Oh my goodness. Would you like to do that here? Would you like to use those skills here? Oh, I'd love to use those skills here. I didn't think it was possible. I'm like, well, okay, let's sit down and talk about what you want to do. And when he knew he could talk about what he wanted to do in the confines of this company, right, was, all right, let's let's find this out. Well, this guy, he could have left. You know, he gets highly recruited. Everyone who calls here wants to recruit this guy. <laughs> Um, yeah, he's just one of those guys, right? Just He's just one of those guys, right? Yep. He makes a huge impact. But he is able to do almost everything he loves to do here. He's involved with acting. He does what he's great at in the company. He's He does his art in the company, too. It's a service we now offer that we used to outsource. And when you can create um, a a role for someone that lines up what they love to do, with the work that you have, I'm not saying it's not it's not new work, right? It's the work that you have. Mm -hmm. Then instead of trying to say, oh, no, he's just an executive assistant. We can't have him do any video because that's not what he does, right? No, he's an executive assistant who's also an artist, who also likes to do video, who, you know, all these other things. And that is true probably for all the people here, you know, and each each person sort of takes their own path. And it doesn't look like. It's, it doesn't look like any of the companies I used to run, that's for sure. But what it does look like is something that you just said at the beginning of this podcast, which was they get up in the morning and they like coming here. And I know they like coming here because they don't leave. Well, you know, in something that you're doing, and I hope people really heard this because I think this is so powerful to creating this kind of culture, is really taking a sincere interest in them as a person, as a human and mm -hmm. understanding more about what you need to do to have the conversation to equip them to just do the the job that you've assigned them. Yeah. 
I mean, I mean that, the and more, that's, that's a big shift oh, for people that they need to do, especially as I shift. talk to folks to my generation. Like, well, why do I need to know about who they are and what what they're doing outside <laughs> of work? I just want to show up and and do my work and get it done. And they they need to give me this so I can get my work done and I want to go home. But those aren't mm-hmm. those are not extraordinary places to work. They aren't, and I think um, they aren't extraordinary places to work because uh, they are just sort of you. Those are time time card punchers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the best people, I think if we think about it, let's think about it, uh, you can th- even think about it more strategically. We are all competing for the best people in whatever industry we're in. We all want the best. The best people are the people who have the best t- um, personal brands. Like you could probably identify 15 people you would want to have as, as, you know, um, in your cohort, John, right? Yep. And that you know them. You may not know them personally, but you know of them. Well, they have a good personal brand, right? And that has been an advent of since really the, with the economy change and the advent of the Internet, too. Well, we all want the best people. The best people are not motivated not to be part of something. The best people are motivated to be part of something good, who are making a difference, who are changing the world, even a teeny weeny way, right? Could be changing their sliver of the world, but they're motivated that way. And if we don't understand that motivation, um, uh, you can attract them. So places that, uh, you know, if you are not going to be involved with your people, you are dooming yourself to, a, you know, a B-grade company. Yep. Couldn't agree more. Or really? I feel so strongly about that. Well, you know, hey, as as we wrap up and people are listening, we have a, you know, a majority of our audience are business owners, they're founders, yeah. they're entrepreneurs or they're coaches working with, you know, these kind of cultures and leaders exactly like you, you know, described. Mm-hmm. What, what are just two or three key takeaways you'd like to just leave with folks, Lee? Sure. I think one thing about uh, leadership is about loyalty. And we used to think about loyalty um, as tenure based or to a person. Right. And I think it's possible and very probable that we can create loyalty to institutions. Um, And the way we do that is to help people succeed in what they want to get done. And if we only have a thought process of loyalty being when while we pay somebody, uh, that's not loyalty. <laughs> that's payment. Um, and if we can shift that idea to have loyalty over a lifetime so that mm-hmm. people can be uh, in relationship with a company uh, for their entire careers, then that is that is sustainability in business. And it's absolutely possible. And I think the other piece is um, the harder you try to hang on to people, the more they want to leave you. So if you can just um, not worry about people leaving, because everyone's worried about it, so don't worry about it. You, when you hire someone, you know they're going to leave you. It is almost predetermined, right? Um, so you know that's going to happen. So instead of worrying about that eventuality, worry about them staying. Worry about the good people staying as long as they can. How do you how do you create a place where people want to show up every day? And that's when you're involved in their lives. And I don't mean like knowing everything about them, but knowing what's important to them and making adjustments. If they can be accountable to their own, um, to their own behavior, which they should be, they're adults, then there's lots of adjustments we can make that work, um, that make uh, teams perform higher, your business succeed more and be more sustainable. And the more sustainable our businesses are, the easier it is. And who doesn't want that? Well, I think we all do. And you know, um, 
you know, when we work with people, right, people don't leave a, a company or a culture or organization per se. I think they really leave, you know, a, a person, a boss. And what you talked about in yeah. that key part of leadership and loyalty, it's about that relationship. And it gets mm -hmm. back to so much you shared about that human side and, you know, really teaching, training and equipping them, understanding what their strengths are letting them have a role and just, you know, plugging into that organization. So even if it is, like you said earlier, right, those menial tasks that they're like, why? Mm -hmm. I've, I've, I've done it once. I've mastered it. Give me something yeah. else. <laughs> but you know what? They haven't connected the dots on the fact that this menial task right. is actually critically important for this team, Critical. this company, this client to operate. And when you and when you help them have that bigger context, all of a sudden, man, people will just, they'll they'll bring their best self to the situation. They will. Absolutely. When they know they make a difference, yep. they want to make a difference. And I would say that people leave people, but um, people leave organizations that where um, bad leadership is allowed. Um, and so if your organization allows bad leadership, allows um, high performers to have bad actions or be bad behaviors, you know, have bad behaviors, that is the organization's issue. Um, and it doesn't inspire lifetime loyalty to an organization if you allow bad actors to maintain themselves that way without any adjustment. Oh, I think that's an awesome point. People leave organizations where bad leadership is allowed. So I just mm -hmm. couldn't agree with that more. Well, you know, as we, as uh, where can people find out more about you, uh, connect with, with you, what you're doing at Forte, um, mm -hmm. double Forte, sorry. And that's okay. um, your books. <laughs> Sure. The best place to go is www.leecarraher.com, L-E-E-C-A-R-A-H-E-R.com. Um, you can find my books there, my workshops, my agency, Double Forte. You can find that there. My blog, which I, I blog all the time about this these issues. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter at, at Lee Carraher or LinkedIn Lee Carraher. I'm really easy to find. <laughs> Lee yes, Carraher. you are. <laughs> All right, Lee, thank you so much for that. And I know, I'm sure, as, as people have listened to this, right, this is going to spark a conversation. Please go to the show notes on this, post comments. We'll get back to you. Uh, get in touch with Lee. Connect with her on Twitter. And um, you guys are definitely, you know, your book, The Boomerang Principle, we really, really didn't get into that, but it's a fascinating book about um, how do you really inspire that loyalty from your employers that we touched on, mm -hmm. or your employees that we touched on here at the end. Yeah. And so... Uh, thank you so much for your time, Lee. This was just a great conversation. I truly appreciate it. John, I appreciate you having me. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Eternal Leadership. Be sure to check the summary of this MP3 for any important links and the link to the show notes for this episode. This edition of Eternal Leadership has been brought to you by Halftime Institute. In 1994, Bob Buford penned the book, Halftime, moving from success to significance, and in the more than 20 years since then, more than three quarters of a million copies have been sold. It's touched baby boomers in the 90s, and it's now touching the lives of both Gen Xers who are in that midlife season asking, is this all there is, as well as baby boomers who are searching for significance in retirement. To get a free copy of the book, just go to eternalleadership.com slash halftime. And after you read it, if you have any questions, you can have a no obligation one hour of halftime coaching. Eternalleadership.com slash halftime. You can't beat getting a free bestseller. For John Ramstead, I'm Steve Ryder, and thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership. <laughs>